Father in heaven, we ask that your spirit will come now and speak to us and touch our hearts so that we won't just be all talk, but that we will live out the things we say. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever met someone that was all talk? I suppose there's some people that we would put in the all talk, just exclusively category, but if we were honest with ourselves, maybe sometimes we all drift a little bit into that. It seems to me there's at least three kinds of all talk people. Now, each of them, I believe, exhibiting differing levels of ill will for certain, But at the end of the day, sometimes very little practical difference in reality. And the three types as I see them are this. The lying dog. Now, I don't mean a cute dog laying on the ground. I mean you lying dog. We have the lying dog. We have the equivocator. And we have the well-meaning self-deceiver. The lying dog is pretty obvious. He or she, as the case may be, will tell you what they think you want to hear. But all the while they're doing it, they know full well in their heart they're not going to do what they just told you they were going to do. We call them bald-faced liars. Now, i got to stop on that for a minute because maybe you've heard that term as bold-faced liar or bald-faced liar. And Alicia and I had a little discussion on this last night. And you go back and you actually look it up. It's actually interesting. They're both wrong. It was originally bare-faced liar. Not as in the face of a bear, but, but what it was was it came from a time where all respectable men wore beards. And you were a barefaced liar if you shaved, you couldn't be trusted. So I got a little bit here, so you can trust me. <laughs> but isn't that funny how the saying hung on, even though we don't all wear beards anymore? But anyway, so actually both are right. Bald face or bold face, either one you want to say is fine. But anyway, we're, we're off the subject there. We call them bald faced liars. These are the lying dogs. And we are frequently shocked by their audacity to straight up lie to us. Sometimes we even know they're doing it, and we're just amazed, we can't say anything. It's like, wow, how can you lie like that? And it is because we are so offended by bald-faced liars that the second group of all talkers appears, a group I like to call the equivocators. The equivocators are the ones who sprinkle maybes into practically everything they say. Not so much because they're actually unsure as to whether or not they're going to do what they're saying, but rather because when they finally and inevitably let you down and don't do it, they want to be able to claim, hey, I never actually said I was going to do it. I said maybe. It's their way of putting you off. They don't want to just say, there's no chance I'm going to do that. So they say, well, maybe we'll get a chance. And then when you're irritated that once again they haven't done it, they try to turn your justifiable frustration at their unreliability into your foolishness. Why were you banking on a maybe? Right? It's interesting to watch. People pick up on equivocators quite readily and begin to engage them in an exercise called pinning them down. 
You've seen that happen, right? But I have to tell you, it's mostly an exercise in futility because equivocators are experts at escaping the pin. They're really good at it. But let me tell you something else equivocators are experts at. They're experts at never having any real close friends. In the end, most people finally realize equivocators are little more than deceitful placators who want you to treat them like people who love you and who will keep their word even when they have no intention of doing so and desire to behave in very self-centered ways. We really don't like lying dogs, and we really don't like equivocators, do we? Except maybe when them is us, right? But that's not the only ones. Then there are the well-meaning self-deceivers. And in a pragmatic sense, there really is little material difference between equivocators and well-meaning self-deceivers because in the end, they both won't or can't ever seem to keep their word. The difference between the well-meaning self-deceiver and the equivocator might seem a bit too subtle for some, but for the sometimes equivocators like myself, the nuance of the language and the intention always seems significant. You see, the well-meaning self-deceiver will talk like a bald-faced liar in that they indicate it is absolutely their intention to do what they say, yet in the end they rarely do it, but not because they lied to you. No, it wasn't a lie because they really intended to do it. It's just that something came up. There was a situation. They lost track of time. They were sick that day or tired or I just got bad news or what. It's always something, right? Wow, did you see the traffic out there? I don't know how anyone got anywhere. Now, in fairness to the well-meaning self-deceivers, sometimes their excuses are true. And because of this, well-meaning self-deceivers can be harder to identify, at least initially. But you'll smoke them out in time, and you know what I'm talking about. You know which people in your life are likely to keep their word and which people in your life aren't. The well-meaning self-deceivers are the ones who usually let you down, but always have a good reason for doing it. It's never their fault. Amazing, isn't it? How the outside world seems to have almost zero effect on the ability of some people in your life to keep their word, yet this same world is always intruding on the promises of certain others. Is it a different world? Or is it just the different people? And here's another piece of commonality between the well-meaning self-deceiver and the equivocator. Like the former, the well-meaning self-deceiver will actually be kind of mad at you for being mad at them over things that were clearly, in their own eyes, completely beyond my control. And in fairness, they have a point. Or at least they have a point the first few times. But eventually you will realize you know the well-meaning self-deceiver far better than they know themselves. And you know the promise they think they're making you they'll never be able to keep. 
And you will realize their word is no better often than the lying dog's word or the equivocator's equivocating. And in no context are lying dogs and equivocators and well-meaning self-deceivers more toxic than in the all-too-common dichotomy of Christian profession versus Christian life. Do I live the faith I profess, or am I more, when it comes to actually living it, a lying dog? I confess it, but I know I'm not going to do it. An equivocator? Well, there might be a chance that maybe I could. Or a well-meaning self-deceiver, Lord, I'm absolutely doing that. Oh, something came up. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You encounter many interesting people when you are a pastor. I was newly appointed to leadership in a church which will remain nameless for this story some years ago. It was one of my first Sabbaths, and one of the elders was leading out in the morning prayer at church. He was leading out in the the whole service. He was not a man that I personally knew yet, and so I had little to base my opinion of him on except for his words. And it seemed to me during the prayer that he was praying a very heartfelt prayer with meaningful language and very powerful words. So powerful, in fact, I was inclined during the prayer at certain moments to amen. And I was a bit surprised by the seeming lack of appropriate responses from the rest of the congregation who seemed to be hearing the man with deaf ears. They weren't hearing what my uninitiated ears heard as a beautiful morning prayer given the way it should be given. But then as time went by, I learned the explanation for their blasé behavior. As it turns out, the man who prayed that day never became a man I personally knew well, and not because I never tried. I actually tried to reach out to him several times because based on the words of the prayer I was hearing, he seemed like someone that we really wanted to have a part of what we were going to be doing going forward in the days ahead. So I spoke with him several times on the phone, and each time he talked as one who was interested in getting together and and in being involved in things, yet when it really came time to do something, he was never there. Never came to prayer meeting, never came to board meeting, never really even, I noticed, never really even came to church except the weeks he was on the platform. And then, after his turn to be platform elder had come and gone a few times, I began to notice something. That prayer that had seemed so meaningful to me the first time I heard it started to lose its power after I heard, in essence, the exact same prayer the next three or four times he was up praying. I even began to wonder if he had it written down. You see, it was like he had learned the right words to say. Yet there was nothing behind it. 
And soon his words became to me as they were to all the others in the church, a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. It's not just Christians. All people hate it when they encounter someone in their life that's all talk. So much so that we've come up with many clever and amusing ways to describe the condition. Maybe you've heard some of these. All bark, no bite. There's a good one from Texas. I like this one. All hat, no cattle. That's those guys that move down there buy a hat, but they don't even know how to ride a horse. There was one I hadn't heard before. It's very fitting to us who live close to the Kennedy Space Center. All booster, no payload. Just shooting fireworks. That's all you're doing. I think this is a dentist one. All crown, no filling. All foam, no root beer. All hammer, no nail. All icing, no cake. All shot, no powder. All wax, no wick. All show, no go. I don't suppose the condition can be summed up any better than the iconic Wendy's slogan from a 1984 commercial, perhaps you remember. Where's the beef? Yeah. Where's the beef? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In the light of this text, are we ever guilty of where's the beef faith? We got a hat, got a nice hat. We got any cattle? Are we living it? So how do we keep from being all talk believers? James, one of the early church leaders in Jerusalem, had some advice regarding this. And for the, for the record, he's not very patient with all talk believers Here's what James had to say. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So we're going to be spending, including today, the next seven weeks considering agape. The Greek word we translate as love that appears so many times in the New Testament. And specifically, we're going to be considering agape in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a most remarkable chapter of the Bible about which Ellen White once remarked in, a, in an article in the Review and Herald. This is from 1904. Listen to this. The Lord desires me to call the attention of His people to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Read this chapter every day, and from it obtain comfort and strength. Learn from it the value that God places on sanctified, heaven-born love, and let the lesson that it teaches come home to your hearts. Learn that Christ-like love is of heavenly birth, and that without it, all other qualifications are worthless. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, 
I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Here's the point I want you to take home today, and a point we'll be reflecting on in a slightly different way from week to week. Beautiful words from an unloving heart is just noise. Beautiful words from an unloving heart is just noise. It doesn't matter how loving and gracious and powerful your words may be, if you don't genuinely love others, your loving words are meaningless. They serve no useful purpose beyond that, perhaps, of certifying you as either a lying dog or an equivocator or a well-meaning self-deceiver. Don't speak love and not love. Well, that's kind of mean to me, isn't it? I mean, how can I say that? Well, actually I didn't, or, or at least I didn't say it first. First John 4, verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a what? You lying dog. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So we, the Forest Lake Church, cannot be the church Jesus wants us to be if when it comes to love, we are all talk, no show. Therefore, because it is central to our faith, we are going to focus again on loving one another. Why? Because love for one another is, well, let me just let Jesus say it. John 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay, now I'm going to ask you a question. You don't, you don't have to actually raise your hand because it would be pressure to raise your hand because we all know the answer on this one. But think about it. How many of you truly want to be disciples of Jesus? Now, there's a lot to being a disciple of Jesus, and there's a lot of stuff that happens out here, but let me tell you, all the stuff that happens out here as a disciple is worthless if you don't have love at the core. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, that you love one another. That's the core. So I'm going to give you a couple tasks. A couple tasks we're going to do for two months here. Now, Ellen White suggested we read 1 Corinthians 13 every day. I'm not going to make you read it the rest of your life. Maybe you'll want to. But here's the challenge I want to give you. Read 1 Corinthians 13 every day for the next two months. And if you're, you're married and living with a family, read it to each other. 
take it out and read it to each other every day. You will be amazed. My wife and I did this exercise this fall. Uh, Jay Perez challenged us to do that. He teaches a class uh, during this service, but he challenged us to do that. And we read it to each other this fall. And you read it a couple times, and it's like, yeah, great. And you read it a few more times, and then all of a sudden you start realizing, yeah, I don't do that very well, do I? And you start seeing in the ways you're interacting with each other, and you're saying, I'm not really, I'm not really living 1 Corinthians 13 here, am I? It really does start to change the way you view everything. So that's the first task, the first challenge, that you would read 1 Corinthians 13, either alone or to each other. And I really recommend it if you're living with someone that you read it together, read it to each other every day for the next two months while we're in this focus. So that's the first. Now here's the second. Whenever you come to this place, Whenever you come into this room, practice saying, as you walk in and as you look around, practice this line, these are the people I love. Okay, it might not even be completely true right now, but we're working up to this, all right? So I want you, whenever you come in here and whenever you're in this sanctuary, now, now ultimately, that we would be able to love one another everywhere is the goal. But, you know, baby steps. Let's, let's try to get there. Practice when you come in here looking around and instead of being disdainful or dismissive or suspicious or fearful of anyone you see, practice saying in your mind, or if you're an extrovert, you can say it out loud, Pastor Steve, you can say it out loud. (laughs) Practice saying, these are the people I love. All right, so just to make sure you can do it, we're going to actually practice doing it right now. So here we go. Are you ready? Say it with me. These are the people I love. Okay, you said it. Now look around and see what you just committed yourself to. Take a look. Seriously, look around at this community. Is this not a remarkable community of faith with people from all over the world and all over this country gathered together in this place? What an amazing opportunity we have to love one another. So now that you've looked around, we're going to say it one more time. And don't you dare be a lying dog on me here. All right? Would be better to put your hand over your mouth if you don't mean it. So here we go. These are the people I love. Keep in mind, love one another isn't just a suggestion Jesus has made. John 15, verse 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. That's a high standard, isn't it? Because how much has Jesus loved us? These are the people I love. Don't say it and be a lying dog. Don't say, there are two or three people in here that I love. That would be an equivocator. Don't be that. And don't be a well-meaning self-deceiver who loves everybody in here, but as soon as you get to the parking lot, it's no holds barred. We're getting out of here. 
The command is clear. Love one another. Let's do it. Let's start loving one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, send us your Holy Spirit. Because it is not within us to love one another without your Spirit of grace in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, let it be said of us that they are truly disciples of Jesus because look at how they love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.